0: Hello everyone and welcome to the next edition of the VTX podcast. Here at the Veterinary Thought Exchange we like to start by asking what are you thinking? And this week we have the great honour actually of talking to Dr. Dennis Di Nicola. He has now retired but uh, spent a large proportion of his career working for IDEX and really he's a clinical pathologist but so much more than that. He really is able to tell us an amazing story of veterinary medicine um, including some of the uh, just phenomenal developments we've had, not just in clinical pathology, but some of the technology that we use to make diagnosis on a daily basis. So really just the most fascinating chat with him. We want to say a massive thank you to our wonderful friends at IDEX for supporting uh, this series of podcasts. They have been a joy to work with uh, and we really are grateful for their their, um, support. In our clinical segment today, we're going to just be rounding off um, our chat uh, about anemia uh, with a whiz through non-regenerative causes of anemia. Well, listen, thanks um, so much for joining us on the podcast today. Um, We are thrilled to have you here for so many reasons. Um, I think uh, I wanted to start really, as we often do, just by uh, getting you to to talk about where you're veterinary journey started, uh, um, and maybe a little bit about your career. I know there, there's a lot to talk about there, but if you can give us a, a kind of uh, an idea of, of how that journey has looked for you. Sure. Uh,
1: it's I, I think the beginning of my journey was um, clearly quite different than most veterinarians, in the fact that okay. um, I really didn't want to become a veterinarian, uh, I was uh, majoring in sciences, biochemistry, and um, in, in my mind, I was going to be a, a researcher. However, um, back at that vintage, <laughs> <back> <laughs> in, uh, uh, most research was performed on animals. Uh, and in my brain, it made more sense uh, to change my pre med curriculum to a Pre vet curriculum and learn more, become a veterinarian to learn more about animal nutrition, animal physiology, and a- animal anatomy, etc. That that would serve me better. Uh, I clearly did not have the genius switch turned on and realized that the MD, the medical doctor, had a much higher success-rated grantsmanship uh, on the big stage. Uh, so. The genius switch, as I said, was not turned on. Um, so I got into veterinary school, um, and I think I was the only member of my class that did not want to become a veterinarian. Uh, you know, my experience yeah. in, in in veterinary sciences in general, and I put this in my application form because uh, they asked, "Well, why? What experience do you have in veterinary medicine?" And and everybody's been working with the practice for years mm-hmm. in high school, etc. My end was pretty brief. I said, "Well, as a child, we had a cat and we had a dog. I rode a horse one time, and I knew where milk came from. That was my experience. Uh, right? And I, and I thought <laughs> maybe they just accepted me because they wanted to see who this joker was <laughs> in general." <laughs> So anyways, uh, I got into veterinary school, and so now my eyes are wide open Uh, because I had no concept of all the aspects of veterinary medicine. Uh, You know, it's much, much more than practicing in a small animal, a large animal, a mixed animal practice. It it covers every gamut of our human life. And that got me very excited about that, and, you know, each semester – I would change my goal. Okay, I want to be uh, a dog doctor. I want to be a small animal. I want to be an equine veterinarian. I want to be this and I want to be that. Uh, And uh, in the meantime, I started a dual degree program at Purdue University where I did my veterinary training. Um, They had an option uh, for a combined DVM PhD program. So I started doing some research and the one ology that was most fascinating to me was pathology. Uh, I found that fascinating because everything was a problem. And, and veterinarians are wonderful problem solvers. Uh, uh, but most veterinarians prefer to solve the problems before uh, the animal dies. Uh, pathologists are finding out after in many cases. Um, therefore, the choice between anatomic and clinical pathology. Came to the forefront, and clinical pathology was my ideal sweet spot uh, because I, you know, I didn't have to get up at three a.m. to do emergency <laughs> surgery. Uh, I didn't have to collect money from anybody, uh, <laughs> and I got to see all the really interesting cases, mm-hmm. um, but didn't have to worry about all the peripheral stuff that the veterinarian goes through. Uh, and I could help solve problems, uh, so I stayed there. Uh, still thinking research all the way through. And when I finished the DVM program, I was so close to my PhD that I completed that uh, there at Purdue University again, um, and uh, started looking at academic situations. Because in addition to problem solving, I I, I found it, um, I guess, twofold uh, related to teaching. One, I love to try to share my knowledge and not my knowledge, but the historic knowledge that we have in our veterinary literature uh, in that way. And I'm quite a bit of a ham and I like to hear myself talk. So (laughs) that seemed like a really good opportunity for me. (laughs) Uh, And I stayed at Purdue for uh, I was on faculty for 21 years uh, and evolved into me. Directing the clinical pathology laboratory that served the teaching hospital, we didn't receive samples from outside of the university. <clears throat> Excuse me, and, um, and and so I had opportunities to be the primary clinpath teacher for veterinary students. And at Purdue, uh, we had a parallel veterinary technician, veterinary nurse program that was in the veterinary school. So veterinary nurses and. Uh, Then all the interns and residents in medicine, surgery, pathology, et cetera, uh, I had the opportunity to at least try to influence. I don't say I influenced everybody, but tried to influence people on the art of diagnostics in clinical pathology. So I was there for 21 years on faculty. And then in 2002, um, I left the university. And there are many reasons behind that that nobody needs to know. Uh, but I was getting a little frustrated with the politics um, and I wanted to do something bigger. So I had the opportunity to join IDEX Laboratories uh, and I was actually their first medical affairs person for in-clinic testing, which is something that I embraced heavily because again, the value of our diagnostics is to get the results back rapidly so that we can manage our patients more rapidly. Uh, so in-clinics seemed the wisest thing for me. And that's clearly a challenge because there's so many different uh, instruments out there that collect data. But I was with IDEX uh, up until May of 2021. Uh, so about 19 years with them. And in that role, I, I had the ideal situation because I was supporting their research and development process uh, in hematology, chemistry, cytology, urinalysis, etc. Again, I didn't have to write grants. (laughs) All I had to do was say, yes, that's a good idea, or no, that's not a really good idea, uh, and and support the development of products along that lines, as well as giving me the platform to serve my ego and being up on a stage and talking to people uh, and trying to influence The minds of many, if it could. Uh, So that's kind of it in a nutshell. I've had two jobs, I guess, in my lifetime. One is faculty member at Purdue. And one is, uh, they they gave me a fancy title, Chief uh, Veterinary Educator. Uh, which sounds good. I don't know what that means. I don't. It was, I don't. I, it up.
0: I don't think it matters. It sounds really good. I wanted so that's Well, it's a. It's a really good. Uh, and it has to be a summary. We, you know, you could. I'm sure talk for for even longer in some of these points. But I just wanted to pick up on a couple of things that you said that I think are really interesting. I think first of all, the fact that you said from the beginning, look, I, I went into vet school, but I don't know that I wanted to be a vet in that kind of truest way that we know. Uh, I suppose know and love and I think a lot of people what's interesting about that is actually a lot of people then uh go into to to vet school thinking they're going to be a vet in whichever sort of capacity but actually much later on they do then realize that it's the gateway to so many other different things you know so actually it's interesting that you kind of realize that almost very early on because I think actually that's the point that maybe we need to get across that it doesn't just mean a small animal vet, an equine vet. And I exactly. think, you know, more and more of us are kind of realizing that. And it's a very important realization for, for many people. What I also loved is the fact that, you know, again, having quite a maybe a clearer understanding of what you wanted, which was not to deal with a lot of the peripheral stuff. And I think actually, you know, speaking from my own experience, the peripheral stuff for me, and when I think about it, it's not, well, peripheral, I don't know if that's the right word, but. But a lot of the 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 stresses for me do involve I I you think you mentioned kind of money you know and having to ask for money or maybe you know clients and and different things that can all be very um uh, you know stressful and 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 I love the fact that ClinPath maybe gave I think you said sweet spot as far as kind of getting all of the things you enjoyed in the same job and, and I think that's also a kind of maybe an important learn for people to sort of say look you need to find the job that suits you and what you like and are good at. And there's lots of options for that, even within the, the veterinary, um, the veterinary sphere. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted, yeah, Exactly. I, and I think that that's, a, yeah, I think we all kind of learn that at different stages. I think you were very lucky to kind of know that from the beginning, which is good. And um, I wanted to, to touch or ask you really about, you know, the you've been involved therefore for in the, research and development around veterinary diagnostics for obviously over 20 years well within IDEX for over 20 years and I think one of the most interesting things for me is the change in 20 years because actually that must have been mind-blowing as far as what mm. is feasible right
1: exactly yeah I the technology that uh, that and we're still facing this it's they're going leaps and bounds forward faster than I would have ever anticipated. And and a great example of that is on the in-clinic side, uh, hematology analyzers. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would have never suspected in my lifetime that I would see a flow cytometer in a practice. Mm -hmm. And and now that's commonplace. Uh, That just still boggles my mind. And when we talk about, uh, well, at IDEX, they just launched a new hematology analyzer and, and I start off the conversation. Well, it's just flow cytometry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and I stop and think, well, well, that's pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I have a flow cytometer on the bench in my practice yeah. uh, technology along the diagnostic tools and think about what, where we've evolved from, uh, a PCR perspective on infectious agents, mm. and and you know we will be shortly. Uh, I, it, it's it's coming. It's in the human side. We will shortly be in a situation where a practice will have a benchtop, real-time PCR testing for infectious disease. So they don't even have to wait twenty-four hours to come back from the reference lab. They can have it within a couple of hours. Uh, uh, it, yeah. The technology has gone absolutely crazy
0: yeah and I, I wonder i wonder can i ask so it was really interesting i i we were speaking to some uh, in a previous podcast to a human um to someone in the human field and uh, who is very heavily involved with diagnostics and i want you touched on the the need for speed the 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 need what you know we've obviously put lots of time effort and money into developing machines that sit on the bench top and give you answers instantaneously why do you think that's so important in the veterinary field particularly because actually in many ways i think we probably are sometimes better than even in the human side because i certainly don't go to my doctors and expect my hematology to come out of a a really good machine on that same day but we our clients do expect that in the veterinary field.
1: Yeah. They, I, I think the veterinary clients are much, much more demanding <laughs> yeah. from yeah. the veterinarian <laughs> than they are with the medical doctor. Yeah. You know, I go and I, I have a very big nose, so I stick my nose in places maybe I shouldn't. So when I go get my blood drawn for some testing, and being a type 2 diabetic, I get a lot of blood testing. Mm-hmm. Um, I learned uh, the person who does the testing, and I go in the back, and I, and I actually follow the, the process. Okay. Uh, but I, so many of my friends, they'll wait for weeks to get a biopsy result mm-hmm. uh, on their person. But yet a veterinarian, the, the veterinarian's client, they're demanding a result within... 10 hours. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or maybe while I'm here in the hospital, yeah. I want the results. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, the The technology that's there has a double-edged sword related to it. Um, and, and clearly, we want as much information to serve our clients the best we can and, and serve our clients. I'm talking about the animal mm-hmm. first, mm-hmm. Uh, to, to get that as close to the best or the correct diagnosis as possible. So he can implement therapy correctly. Uh, That's, that's essential. So the faster we get those results, the, the more attention we can put to our patient. Mm -hmm. However, the other side of that blade is, I think many veterinarians are becoming too dependent on the laboratory data. And, and, you know, it's, it's strange for a clinical pathologist to suggest don't ignore the animal, don't ignore your physical exam findings, you have to put it all together. But you need objective data, because our animals don't tell us, oh, it hurts on the upper right quadrant of my abdomen. Uh, Oh, I've been feeling poorly for the last few weeks. We don't get that information from our patients. And on top of that, our animals hide disease really well,
0: really. And that's actually that's particularly challenging, I think, because What I find, particularly as an internist, I find myself at the point where we're diagnosing very severe illness, you know, terminal, probably animal will not be around for very much longer, but the signs have only come on actually within the last couple of days. Now, obviously that's not been the case, but actually it blows my mind how well particularly dogs are just good at kind of getting on with it. But I do think that becomes you know, significantly um, uh, sort of diagnostically very challenging for us, you know, very challenging. Absolutely. I wanted to pick up just on one other thing you said, which I thought was interesting about relying too much sometimes on the test and actually taking that a step further. I would would argue actually that I sometimes feel like saying to vets maybe that I'm talking about, you know, advice stuff. I sometimes feel like saying, well, actually sometimes don't do the test. Like I think there's got to be, Always a good reason to do the test, and that is based on the way that the animal is presenting. And sometimes, actually, doing the wrong test because we're just doing all the tests can take us off down a rabbit hole that is not even that good a place to go. Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, yeah it, it's um, and in in actually close to you in the UK, <laughs> there has been a lot of um, in contrast to much of the rest of the world, embracing wellness testing in animals yes. has been delayed because I, I, I think you're exactly correct that you do things testing-wise based on the clinical presentation. And we yes. know, farewell, that animals hide disease really well, that that's the nature of evolution. Now, the weak are going to be removed from the herd, uh, and that mentality yes. is there today with our domestic cats and dogs even. Uh, so, yeah. they don't show that um, yet. In, in of contrast to what we've done in North America, where we've emphasized wellness testing uh, yearly mm-hmm. or every other year, doing a, a complete hematology, chemistry, urinalysis workup. That's to collect that information, very, very sensitive information to detect mm-hmm. there's a deviation from health. Sure. And, and sure. so that we can intervene quicker, Uh, Mm -hmm. maybe do further diagnostics. Okay. I've got maybe some strange looking red blood cells and that's the, in the blood film. And that's the only abnormality we see. Well, there's a reason they're there. And now it becomes the challenge of the veterinarian. This is, this is the fun part of veterinary medicine as being the problem solver. Why do I have that abnormality? And, and Mm -hmm. once you show your client that here, this is clearly not normal, we need to further pursue this. So, this could be severe underlying developing disease that we're not picking up with the other tests. We're not seeing based on clinical presentation. So I think we maybe let's start off with non invasive techniques. Let's do some diagnostic imaging. Well, is the liver big? Is it nodular? Is the spleen nodular? You can get a lot of insight into there. But we, so the advantage of the technology is we collect really good data. The disadvantage is that either it's under interpreted or over interpreted. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. that becomes the the um, the art the of diagnostics. Art,
0: I was going to say, and that's so when you put it like that, actually, I'm then as you're saying that I'm like, oh no, I'm convinced that yeah, I think it's it's almost like a cultural thing where you know it will be you know it takes a bit of convincing to you know to to certain groups to be like this is the right thing to do because actually again when it comes down to spending people's money and and all that kind of stuff and particularly when owners are like well but there's nothing wrong with them but actually when you put it across like that i'm like oh yeah that sounds like a really good thing to do but i think it's the yeah the the crunch point the art the art i like like the, i like that the art of it is then knowing what to do with that information and being able to put that to i suppose to the the best possible use i suppose exactly yeah. i wanted to ask so the the obviously you talked about you know the the the, the some of the, the progress that we've made within veterinary medicine <clears throat> particularly when it comes down to hematology and what we can do on on the bench top which is which truly is incredible what would you say you've obviously been involved in lots of different things along the way what would you say the thing that you are most sort of personally proud of as far as your contribution to some of these um developments
1: well uh, and that's that that's that's a tough one that's a big big chunk to bite into because there there are so many things <laughs> <laughs> that I'm, i'm really proud of what and yeah. and i i can't ignore my family because i'm really impressed with my family i i clearly was not a good role model for my children because <laughs> my my son is a computer scientist. He doesn't <laughs> want anything to do with biological sciences. My mind. daughter's a, a chemical engineer mm-hmm. working for 3M. She doesn't want to have anything to do with <laughs> biological sciences. So I, I was not a good role model for them mm-hmm. uh, in, in going towards veterinary medicine. But my grandson now is showing interest. So oh, okay. <laughs> uh, I may, may have a, a holdout there. Yeah. Um, I think... Uh, it, it, some of the the big highlights are uh, related to the much more individual connections that I've made over the years with the many residents and interns that I've had the chance to work with one on one on the other side of a double headed scope or in a in a in a grand rounds type performance discussion format that I, you know I now have uh, some of my trainees that are at, at most uh, commercial reference labs or clinical pathologists at veterinary schools. And now they're, they're like my disciples, if you would, <laughs> that are out there. Yeah. Professing all the falsehoods of Dina Cola, uh, <laughs> <the, laughs> all the mistakes he made, they're now transferring yeah. onward, um, But then, then uh, I, I truly enjoyed, um, clearly the university life was, uh, a, a really substantial part of my life. Uh, and, uh, leaving the university, I probably should have said, I am I haven't completely left it. I still have an adjunct professorship at Purdue university and I work with the residents there. And now in my retirement, since I retired from my just may of this year, um, I'll be doing more work education-wise with Purdue University. So mm-hmm. I'm going to continue that process. And mm-hmm. I want to be up on the stage again. So okay. I can sp- <laughs> speak <laughs> with everything. But while at while at IDEX, the the opportunity to influence the development process, not, not only on the 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 development of a particular analyzer, but the choice of what to develop there. Uh, Uh, There are some phenomenal scientists at at Idex Laboratories, and I had opportunity to work with them. And giving that medical direction uh, to some brilliant people that don't know anything about an animal uh, uh, was kind of a critical step. And and that's been a big part of Idex's success in general. And I I had a, a big role in playing in developing of some very, very specific very universally internationally noted analyzers that are out there. The, the ProSite DX is one of the hematology analyzers that IDEX developed. My license plates on my car are ProSite. Uh,
0: I can't deal with uh, that. Very <laughs> <proud of it. laughs>
1: I'm, I'm very proud of that. That's I, amazing. I both of my, both of my uh, um, uh, bosses, I did get permission to be able to do that. First I asked my wife if I could do it and, <laughs> And second, I asked the CEO of IDEX, I love "Can that. I do that?" I, li- um, I
0: would have loved to be a fly in the wall. I think for both of those conversations, you asking your wife, "Can my can my number be site? And then the CEO of IDEX. that is um, that's taken this to a new level for me. So I'm, I um, I I love that. So when you, I mean, j- I just need to touch on one thing. I think you know, and through previous conversations we've had, I think. You know you talk about retirement but actually that's not it's a bit of a lie well not a lie it's a bit of a i don't know what the <laughs> word is it's not it's not really true because it's not really <laughs> you're not really cutting the cord so i think you're obviously continuing to have um uh, you know uh, continue to be in the workplace in some way um so it, 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 i suppose my question is is it really retirement or are you just kind of pretending
1: it's I, Well, uh, officially, it's retirement. They don't pay me in with my okay. benefits and everything <laughs> like that and my, my health insurance. Uh, but I do have a contractual agreement with the research and development team. I, I do plan on still doing education events. Um, the, the key difference for me is that the amount of time that I'll invest into that is when it changed. And, and truly the 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 absolute best part of retirement, and I'm still learning. It's only been a few months, so I'm still learning how to retire. Um, but the, the biggest difference was not having to be in meetings all day long. Uh and, and I, I I'm much more productive now <laughs> when I've retired from IDEX doing IDEX things than I was when I was employed by IDEX. Uh, and, and I can, you know, um, take a break. Um, the dog comes into the office here and gets me going about 1130. She wants to do her walk. So I'll go walk where I never did that before. Uh, and I can take my mid-afternoon nap. because <laughs> right. I'm getting older. <laughs>
0: So there is, there's some joy in there too. There's some joy in there too. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So as far, you know, you, you, you do you know, we, you don't completely leave a world behind, but you're leaving, uh, you know, well, you're, you're stepping in a different direction in a very exciting profession. That's obviously continuing to develop in, um, in lots of ways. What do you, as far as kind of, I suppose, the particularly the field that you have been working in, what do you see in the future? What, what kind of exciting things do you think there are to come for us? Um, on the bench, top particularly.
1: Well, I it, it, uh, I can't tell you everything.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine.
1: <laughs> but uh, I, I actually,
0: as I was asking that question, I thought I bet he's going to just say, "I can't, I can't tell you," which is fine. <laughs> it makes it sound like something, very, yeah, very governmental and top secret. But okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the espionage. I can't tell yeah, you okay. if I tell you, I'll have to kill you or something. <laughs> <Fine>. um, <laughs> okay. It's. Uh, I mean, I. I I think you could watch the human uh, literature from a development standpoint, because in many aspects, IDEX has been ahead of the human side from a diagnostic perspective, whether it becomes, you know, specialty testing, PCR testing, you know, IDEX was involved in developing assays for diagnosis of COVID. uh, And we were doing testing on animals before uh, there was a widespread use in human medicine uh, that, You look at the technology, um, things that we did in hematology are now being transferred into the human side for instrumentation because of the investment that we made into that process. But rapid diagnosis is going to be really high attention uh, for sure. Um, Less and less blood (laughs) being used for testing is going to evolve, you know, more infrared uh, skin through percutaneous, uh, measurements of different analytes, similar to what we're doing with in humans now with glucose monitoring and things like that for a diabetic, uh, I, those tests are going to go. I, I can't speak to diagnostic imaging because I, I, uh, the, there are, there are a couple of major parts of veterinary medicine that I failed miserably in, uh, surgery was one of them. Okay. I, I have 10 thumbs, uh, <laughs> Even as a veterinary student, a senior veterinary student, I had one of my classmates spay my own dog because I really liked that dog and I wanted it to live. (laughs) So so surgery is not my forte. (laughs) The other where development is taking place is in diagnostic imaging. Um, I'm worthless. Looking at radiographs, looking at ultrasound, I can detect whether there's a broken bone, a really big break, (laughs) not (laughs) a airline fracture. An obvious one. (laughs) if there are puppies in there that, that's about yeah. all i could diagnose uh, so those areas uh, just think of what we've done in getting Amazing. away from the x-rays and uh Amazing. the uh, that that just is mind-blowing what's going on now
0: but even in my you know i'm not, sorry i'm not i'm not implying that you're old at old i'm just saying even in, even in yeah. my <laughs> but even so in my sort of lifetime as a vet i still remember as a vet student you know uh, going into the dark and 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 uh, you know um m- developing X rays you know that was my job yep. you know and then hanging them up like with pegs on a line you know so I think to think that we now press a button and it's just on a screen I mean that you know that's crazy but actually I went to I went to an imaging conference recently looking at some of the technology to like literally visualise the inside of an alveoli I mean it just is absolutely like you know mind-blowing but even the fact that we've got ct and mri i don't know it's just you know we we talk about ct being the gold standard for diagnosing i don't know a portosystemic shunt but i remember still where you know that wasn't even an option and you had to have a really good ultrasonographer but i yep. think it's just so so the, the 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 potential in that area that's a really good example the potential actually in that area is still um is mind blowing as well so i i think it's it's amazing to look back and see how how uh, things have um you know things have developed um so i think there there's um there's a few th- questions that we like to um ask um the guests that come onto our podcast and i think that um I, i'm interested already to know what your answers are but i think <laughs> and i don't want you to take this question the wrong way but one of the questions that we have been Uh, asking and i stole this off another podcast full disclosure so my first question to you is what do you want to be when you grow up
1: (laughs) that's that's a good question because i don't think i've grown up yet good Uh, okay fine (laughs) (laughs) i i i really want to have a um significant impact on education Uh, education in clinical pathology specifically obviously um, and and that, that's a big reason why I'm staying close to the university. Um, back in the early 1980s, uh, one of my mentors, Dr. Alan Rebar, that many people know around the world, and myself started a, uh, what we call the National Psychology Resource Center, with the, in our minds, the vision that we will build this resource, and at that time, it was all glass slides. Because we didn't have yeah. digital anything, right? So, right. so building resources, cases and cases and cases for people to come to the university and review in preparation for examinations or become a better diagnostician, uh, and then also for us to be able to lend out like a library to different universities for wet labs that were going on. That that was our intent, uh, and and it was it was. You have to understand that I think of hematology as an arm of cytology. It's the cytology of the biggest organ system in the body. So it was hematology and the planet classic cytology, fine needle aspirates, fluids, things like that. Um, so, what we are working on is changing that resource center, which most people around the world don't know, and to really bring it up a notch. Uh, and introduce all the digital modalities that we have. Now that we can scan a whole slide, somebody doesn't have to go to West Lafayette, Indiana to, to review that material. They could do it online as uh, general. So we're going to try to change it to the International Clinical Pathology Resource Center. And that way it'll be impacting you know, many, many students uh, for many years uh, and way after I'm gone. And I'd like to have a connection to that, that I've I've put a little into that uh, as far as effort and development. That's that's what I want to be when I grow up as known known as a as a significant educator in clinical pathology, veterinary clinical pathology.
0: And I'm sure you've already achieved that in some way. But yeah, I mean, that sounds amazing. And I think. The the other thing actually just off the back of what you said there, the, the fact that we we now have a digital cytology platform in our in the clinic I work in, the fact that I can upload these images, the fact that a pathologist looks at them like that, the fact that I can then get sent images of them back and say, look, this is what we we're looking at, it absolutely blows my tiny mind. Like I just think it is incredible. <laughs> and actually, but but do you know how do you know how impactful these sorts of platforms are i, I th- just off the top of my head and I'm, I'm not meaning to mention sort of competitors but you know there's the Ecl the eekland path platform out of cornell and um, you know these these resources are, are are so internationally valuable just as far as kind of a little bit of a helping hand so i think that sort of thing people just eat that sort of stuff up and it's there's a real desire to to know more in that particular area people i think are always wanting to be better uh, under the microscope, and I think these these sort of digital uh, advances are definitely help you know helping people with that kind of uh, learning and that sort of side of things. So, no, that sounds very uh, sounds very exciting.
1: Yeah, the microscope is becoming kind of microscopy is becoming a kind of an end stage instrument anymore, and you know because you can now buy a digital microscope if you need to do that specimen that way, or there are things like digital cytology that you can connect to a pathologist around the world 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. that That's, again, crazy. who would have considered that ever being possible? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but... Um, and my microscope is going to stay with me. <laughs> I'm old, and I'm not going to. I will grab that microscope as they put me into the grave. Okay. <laughs> it's a, I'm not going to let go of it. But I'm going to embrace the the technology that's there, and and I because I, I think that is uh, pretty phenomenal how that's all changing, and that's going to make it easier for people to do that. I, I one downside to our technology is that all of a sudden we're making really huge bills for our customers. Uh, If we embrace everything and we think that, well, if if I'm not going to use my brain, I'm not going to use my hands and do a good physical examination, that the danger is that people will just start checking off boxes. I'll do this test, this test, this test, this test. And then we'll wait for the, the instrument to say, send you back a result saying, well, this is Addisonian uh, crisis going on without having to think. Uh, that, I think that's dangerous for us to become too much of a technician in the profession rather than that diagnostician, that, that problem solver that I see you know the vast majority of veterans around the world they're really good pattern recognition people and problem solvers we don't want to change that no, you're right but we can give them tools to get to a further place than they ever could have gotten before
0: yeah no that's true I think it always in the context of the patient that is it's truly important as, as amazing as um, all of this technology is and just and, uh, that final thing about the digital cytology as much as i respect the the microscope it's 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 changed my life um in internal medicine doing presentations because i now have amazing images that i can use from the actual page you know it's 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 an amazing image bank for me to use for talks so that has also made my life a lot easier um so the um i think I'd, well. I think I know the answer to this question I presume well how how can I presume so if you were to go back in time and to obviously knowing all the things you know now about your career would you would you still make that decision to go to veterinary school
1: uh absolutely I I I don't think there's any question but I uh, if if I had an opportunity to redo it I would have um and knowing what I know now about veterinary medicine, I would have preferred to have had a good pre-veterinary school uh, experience in veterinary clinics of different types uh, ah. to get exposed to not just not just the small animal dog and cat veterinarian, but to the the farm animal, the the equine group, to find out. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, more about what they do on a day in, day out basis. You know, kind of h- how does James Harriet work here? <laughs> I want to uh, know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, because I didn't have yeah. that. I had to learn that uh, after right. the fact. But interestingly, um, and I went right from, I just continued my PhD research work right after my DVM program. Uh, my only practice experience was my externship during senior year in veterinary school. Uh, and I knew, I, I knew very rapidly <clears throat> I would not survive in that environment because I'm not a business person. <coughs> and um, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm not a business person and I I don't handle finances well uh, personally. Again, my wife takes care of all of that. Uh, and, <laughs> and I could envision that if I went into practice <laughs> Because it was very sad during the externship, realizing that there are a lot of your clients that really can't afford to do things or do not have the time to invest into that animal. That my fear would be that I would have my two or three children that my wife and I had planned right from the beginning when we started dating in high school. Uh, That was our target. Uh, And we would probably have about a dozen dogs and a dozen cats each of them three-legged and diabetic because the, the owners wouldn't want to do that. And my children would have really crooked, ugly teeth because we couldn't—we wouldn't be able to afford it. <laughs> you could uh,
0: afford it. <laughs> yeah.
1: So I, I think if I had better experience in the veterinary field itself, that, that would have made me a better person in, in my teaching responsibilities. I, I demanded that... <laughs> all of my residents coming into clinical pathology that they had to be in practice for at least one year because I didn't want them to have to learn how to understand what goes on in the practice. Like I did.
0: Well, yeah. And I think that's honestly, that's really important. I think to have particularly, you know, from that side where you are not in the clinic and you're doing clinical pathology, I think that's a really, really important. That's really important. I think, and having a bit of a, perspective on what what's going on out there I think that's really that's really important I just have two then off the back of that just very quick questions have you ever had a three-legged dog
1: um personally no
0: all oh, right. And do your children have crooked teeth, or are they okay?
1: No, they're they're they've done really well. Uh, <laughs> okay. They they got an education. Uh, they got good teeth. So okay. I, <laughs> I think from a, a family perspective, we did things really well. Uh, good. Again, I attribute most of the success of our children to my wife. <laughs> okay, fair
0: enough. <laughs> no, I served as the year.
1: softball coach, the soccer coach. I did all that. Uh, uh, and I may have influenced them a little in the bad direction as far as a work ethic, because, it, it, you know, like most veterinarians, we work really hard, really long hours. It, you, your mind is never turned off. Uh, so both my children are workaholics, I'm afraid. Uh, and but they're dedicated to doing the best of what they can do. Uh, so I maybe I've influenced a little bit on that end teeth are good, good educations <laughs> and and I haven't had to get a three-legged dog yet <laughs> okay good.
0: well we're glad to hear it um so you um whether or not you realize it um have definitely inspired uh, a huge number of people uh, throughout your career um and I love that you you've mentioned a couple of times actually your residents and, and and other uh, positions like that and I'm sure it inspired many many of them Could you share with us a little bit who has inspired you
1: well boy there there are so many people that have had huge influence on me um from a personal perspective um my parents and my father in particular of you know you do the right thing, you do good to people, and you'll have you many rewards coming back that 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 work ethic there from my dad was really very really influential on how I think I've evolved in general. Within the veterinary career, uh, I had the opportunity of working with two of the best mentors, um, the well-respected veterinary clinical pathologist, Dr. Alan Rebar and Dr. Daniel Boone, it, no pun intended, that was his real name, <laughs> <clears throat> that, that these two people were, I, I mean, leaders in their time, uh, for sure. Uh, and, and I think when you mentioned rebar, I think many people around the world recognize his name. He's been so influential in, especially from the in-clinic testing perspective, you can do diagnostic cytology in your practice. Well, now it's easier. You just put a slide in the machine, but, but it's, you can do that in your practice. You can do hematology. This is something that an average practitioner can do. Uh, really quite well. Uh, and he's been a huge influence on me, but, but there are, you know, many of my colleagues, um, being older, uh, means that there were very few clinical pathologists before me. Uh, I, I think I, I never remember, but I think my, um, board certification number in clinical pathology is 62. Um, Oh wow! So, so, there are only sixty-one wow. <laughs> board-certified veterinary clinical pathologists before me, and all within wow. about a five-year time period. So now, my friends in veterinary clinical pathology are the people that started the process here in America, mm-hmm. and then it's spanned off into uh, outside of, into Europe. There's a European College. It is a Japanese yeah. College of Veterinary Pathology, and uh, and that. I I consider most of these people as being good friends uh, and yeah. every one influences me. And, you know, they all are so similar in character. They're extremely mm-hmm. knowledgeable, first off, but they're extremely sincere in what mm-hmm. they say. And they're careful in what they say. And they love educating people. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, this is uh, uh, I, it's, it, my life's been great. Um, now I have to figure out what to do with the second half of my life.
0: <laughs> the world is your oyster. the world is your oyster literally um now that we can travel again, you can go anywhere now it's fine um well almost not quite um so if you and and this is this is not whatever you uh, want to share, but if you were to then give um one piece of advice to people, something that you feel has really stood you well um what, what one piece of advice would that be um, to the people listening?
1: I, I, think, I think probably the best advice is going back to the very early part of our conversation is find what you really want to do and embrace that. I, I think, you know, don't go into a discipline within veterinary medicine because there's a lot of money in that discipline. Go into the discipline that you are most happy with. Uh, you'll be respected, and, and that's you know I don't know how much money that's worth of getting the the respect of your family, your your clients, your cohorts. Your, that that's that's probably the best advice. Find the niche that fits you best. And the back to our original conversation, there are so many areas within veterinary mm-hmm. medicine that are available mm-hmm. to you. Uh, and you know, investigate them all get experiences get exposure to it uh, and you can do that during your undergraduate college time period and, and many start back when they're in high school in, in grammar school uh, get as much experience as possible to find your sweet spot uh,
0: and, and also I think you know I've said this a number of times and it, it and you can change at any time like I think the one thing that we're all in control of is the fact that we can change what we're doing at, at any given second really and and we're in control of that and i think that um it's really important that that and i've certainly felt trapped you know within my job before and i thought there's not really any other options for me but that's not true and i think that um and I, again just coming back to that original part of the conversation what i, I do think um Hopefully, more and more people are learning. Is that actually there are so many options, and let's explore them all. Like you say, you can do something different every week if you like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so. you're
1: absolutely correct. And and uh, I think the I I can't speak to it personally, but there are clearly big changes that are taking place within our veterinary medicine, our practice situations. Corporate medicine is is consuming veterinary medicine. Uh, and and I I don't know where it's going to be five, 10 years from now, but clearly it's going to be a predominating factor in how veterinary medicine is practiced. Um, but within that alone, there are many different options, uh, there, and, and you do have, this is always going to be a need for a veterinarian, whether it's to serve as a veterinarian in a practice or to serve as a consultant in a research and development team or to serve as an educator at a nursing college or a veterinary college that there are going to be always these opportunities where the veterinarian is going to be needed Uh, and uh, you're right you're not stuck you're not stuck in that little box you can do whatever you want exactly find your sweet spot that's that's the key be happy don't worry be happy don't worry be happy (laughs)
0: well on that note i think um just to say a massive thank you uh for chatting to us today it has been uh a joy and um so many so many interesting points and so many i think so many things that people will uh really resonate with so uh thank you very much for sharing that with us uh today oh
1: you're totally welcome it was it was a joy for me too uh, again i like oh. to hear myself talk so that's it <laughs> that's <laughs> well, always a good thing
0: and the good news that The good news is, this will be available on iTunes and you can listen back to it as many times as you like. (laughs) (laughs)
1: That's great.
0: Anyway, on that note, thank you so much. Thank
1: (laughs) Thank you, Scott.
0: And now we'll pop into our clinical chat, which is today non regenerative causes of anemia okay so today we're just going to round off our anemia clinical segments um, by talking about um some of the causes of non-regenerative anemia and actually this is important because non-regenerative anemia is the most common form of anemia that's seen in cats and dogs the challenging part of the investigation of non-regenerative anemia is that actually it can be caused by lots of different things um, inside and outside of the bone marrow when we think of non-regenerative anemia we think of well it must be a bone marrow problem because that's where the the blood is being made the blood cells are being made but it doesn't have to be directly in there you know there can be a, what we call medullary, extra bone marrow causes of non-regenerative anemia too again we're basing our assessment of regeneration on reticulocyte count so um, and again if the reticulocyte count is uh, not appropriate uh, for the anemia uh, then it is uh, non-regenerative and i would you know refer obviously to your laboratory references for that the only main thing to consider is it it looks non-regenerative. Could it be pre-regenerative? Could it be that there has been a bleed, and the body's just not had time to um, kick in with its regeneration yet? And that's always something to consider. Um, and repeating a blood sample three to seven days down the line would just confirm whether that was pre-regenerative or uh, or or not. One of the things we we talked about immune-mediated hemolytic anemia last time, and actually. As much as that typically is a very regenerative anemia, we must remember uh, that some immune-mediated hemolytic anemias can also be non-regenerative. So we mustn't let that kind of catch us out when we're looking at these um, conditions. Looking at kind of anemia, non-regenerative anemia in chronic disease is actually not an insignificant thing. For instance, you know, cats with chronic kidney disease um, and uh their uh survival was actually uh one of the factors that potentially can affect survival in that population of patients is their is the presence of anemia as well the clinical signs of non-regenerative anemia again can be can be really vague um so it's all the kind of typical things pale mucous membranes potentially weakness depression tachycardia if the body's starting to kind of compensate for that um but again the interesting thing often about um more chronic non-regenerative anemias is that they can develop over quite some period of time so equally i've seen non-regenerative anemia dogs and cats present relatively bright because actually they've they've kind their bodies kind of learned to cope with that anemia over a period of time and that can be an interesting kind of difference in the way that um in the way that we see these patients present you know uh, compared to if you have a really acute bleed then and your pc drops and pcb drops from 45 to 25 in 20 minutes then you're going to see the effects of that um outwardly as far as the causes of non-regenerative anemia they can be um quite varied um you know things that are causing uh failure of the bone marrow to produce uh red blood cells so medullary causes but also um you know secondary or extra medullary uh, uh causes the other main differential for a non-regenerative anemia would be um uh chronic blood loss usually gastrointestinal uh blood loss um where um over time uh, that kind of degree of blood loss um initially can be regenerative but can become non-regenerative um can become non-regenerative over over time remember i said we can um get uh, non-regenerative forms of immune-mediated hemolytic anemia as well and then there's the role of iron in all of this and that's a really interesting one because we can get absolute iron deficiency, for instance, through chronic blood loss, where the body actually becomes depleted of iron. But there are many conditions, particularly inflammatory conditions within the body, that can cause iron to be handled in a sort of different way, cause iron sequestration. And maybe in those cases there's not an absolute iron deficiency but certainly uh, will cause iron to be affected and that will potentially be contributing to uh, the non-regenerative um, anemia so giving you know some examples of causes and um, uh, you know as I said causes uh, inside and outside uh, the bone marrow and um, there are a number of drugs that can cause um suppression of the bone marrow and anemia phenobarbital um, some antimicrobial agents, oestrogen obviously is, can be a cause, um, infectious ages like feline um, leukemia virus, feline Im- immunodeficiency virus, parvovirus, ehrlichia. um We can get things like aplastic anemias, myelodysplastic syndromes, myeloproxia, proliferative uh, syndromes where you know things kind of um abnormal tissue takes over the bone marrow uh, bone marrow necrosis obviously neoplastic conditions so lots and lots of different things that are possibilities um extra causes or you know uh, problems outside the bone marrow things like um kidney disease where there's a lack of um production of erythropoietin which stimulates bone marrow uh, uh, Production of red blood cells, um, some other uh, conditions, uh, endocrine conditions, hypopituitarism pe- and hypothyroidism, and that really is a good example of some of the hormonal effects um, that can uh, have a, have a, an effect on on the bone marrow. In essence, um, many many systemic illnesses result in non-regenerative anemia and and the reasons for that is actually really complex and multifactorial um it can be due to the fact that um there is a, a ineffective production of red blood cells a good example of that would be the chronic kidney disease and the lack of production of erythropoietin but also the the blood cells just might not last as long in the circulation and that can certainly be um that can certainly be an issue too So that's another factor to take into consideration. Certainly red blood cells that are damaged, whether that be because of oxidative damage or stress um, on the membrane will be removed from the system sooner. So it may be that they're not sort of hanging around um, as long um, in the the circulation. We talked there before about um, actually that kind of direct effect of a really important factor erythropoietin on the bone marrow and actually that definitely can cause uh, a non-regenerative anemia because the bone marrow's response is going to be uh, reduced and that commonly will happen in in kidney disease because it's the kidney that really is the main site of production of um, erythropoietin. The other main thing um, to uh, consider um is again this effect of um iron deficiency and inflammation on the bone marrow and certainly that is something that um can be caused by many many different uh, many many different conditions one of the things to remember is that actually in your investigation of anemia um iron uh, can be actually quite tricky to um to assess um, and and certainly we know that measuring total serum iron can be really inaccurate and um, certainly not an accurate way of representing whole body iron so we need to be looking at, at these iron profiles that we will um uh, that we will see um from our external labs which will include things like ferritin transferrin percentage saturations of iron and that's a much more um uh, uh, effective way of assessing iron status. One of the really clever things that um, the new um, IDEX analyzers, um, hematology analyzers uh, or procyte analyzers will do is measure uh, reticulocyte hemoglobin concentration. Um, and certainly that has been shown to be potentially a very useful early indication uh, of iron deficiency in dogs. So that's something else to look out for on your in-house profiles um, and certainly may be very helpful in the assessment of iron in your patients. So diagnostically um, you need to find the anemia. you need to take a good history to make sure that there's not um, obvious drugs and toxins that can be excluded from um, uh, being a cause of the, the problem. You need to determine that the iron the anemia is definitely uh, non-regenerative. And if the patient's stable, then again, checking in two to three days to make it sure that it truly is non-regenerative is definitely a good idea. Looking at other blood cell lines, is it just the red blood cells that are affected or are all the white blood cells affected as well? Because that certainly changes your differentials, one cell line being affected versus all cell lines being affected. Certainly looking for atypical cells in the circulation, Um, that can sometimes give you a bit of a clue. FeLV, FIV testing in cats. Um, but ultimately you're then getting down to um the you know truly persistent non-regenerative anemias. You are thinking about bone marrow core and aspirates in order to make a more definitive um diagnosis, uh, and we may consider, as we said, things like iron profiles to assess for body iron status. Looking um uh. Uh, other potential investigations, you know, uh, as far as um you know, uh potentially underlying triggers for inflammatory uh disease, biochemistry, uh, urinalysis, uh other vector-borne diseases potentially, abdominal ultrasonography and thoracic radiography, but very much will depend on um you know the initial blood work that you're um that you're getting. As far as some treatment options for non regenerative anemia, it really depends on the cause. They may or may not need transfusion therapy. They may or may not need iron supplementation. And one of the things that they may or may not need um, is substances, erythropoiesis stimulating agents to actually stimulate the bone marrow. And then if there's immune mediated disease, do they need immunosuppression potentially? transfusion for bone marrow failure is actually much less common than for other blood loss or hemolytic anemias and there's multiple reasons for that probably in some cases because actually the prognosis for some of the conditions of non-regenerative anemia are worse and therefore blood transfusions won't be carried out Um, but certainly um, you know many of these patients will require um, you know transfusion therapy. Iron can be supplemented um, either orally or parenterally by an injection, usually intravenous injection, and there are various formulations of that. Um, normally, iron is supplemented injectably every three to four weeks uh, and can be given orally, but sometimes not tolerated so well orally, um, if that's the route that you're giving, and we do have to supplement for quite prolonged periods of time. If you are going to directly stimulate erythropoiesis by giving basically um, uh, recombinant forms of erythropoietin, so typically we would give a human uh, recombinant uh, darbopoietin, Um, then that's something that I would typically use actually in cases of um, chronic renal insufficiency that are becoming anemic. They are useful very much in those cases, but has other uses in human medicine. So maybe we are underusing it in our uh, canine and feline patients. Darbopeutin is definitely what I would use. Um and we normally are giving that once weekly. Uh, once we get to target PCV of around 25 to 30% in cats and maybe slightly higher in dogs. But it, it's not completely benign. You can get um some side effects including uh uh hypertension and and some um uh, allergy type side effects as well as even uh, seizures and um, so I'm using it as much as I need to but not above and beyond that and usually we have to give con- concurrent uh, parenteral iron supplementation other <clears throat> other immunosuppressants are actually just as we would typically know so glucocorticoids and then other potentially secondary immunosuppressant agents including cyclosporine azathioprine mycophenolate if they, if they are not sufficient I think overall, um, with, um, non-regenitive anemia, I think the, 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 the main thing I think is uh, this confusion and this, and this, um, difficulty about the sort of decision-making over, um, the cause and whether or not to bone marrow or not, um, I think persistent, um, significant suppression of red cell and other lines does warrant bone marrow, um, bone marrow assessment, um. <clears throat> Sometimes it's difficult to understand where to go in there with with kind of running iron profiles and things like that. But um, ultimately, um, it, you know, iron profiles is not, thing, is not something you're doing on every non regenerative anemia. The majority of non regenerative anemias that you'll be dealing with will be relatively mild and will usually be due to other disease. And so actually sorting out that other disease will be sufficient in the majority of cases to deal with some of these more tricky anemias thank you again to dr Dina Cola for chatting today massive thank you again to our wonderful friends at idex Um, and just a massive thank you to you all for listening we really appreciate your ongoing support if you are interested to find out a little bit more about vtx do head over to our website www.vtx cpd.com and do give us a like, follow and share on social media. I look forward to seeing you all again next time.